The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Friday to you, Madison Mills. Thanks for joining me from New York today. Thank you so much for having me, Kaylee. I'm so excited to be here and to get to do this um, by city show with you as we wrap up our week here. A lot of good stuff to get to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the fact that we're both from Washington and New York today really speaks to the fact that everything we're talking about here in D.C. at the moment, the debt ceiling, the economy ties back to Wall Street and to what markets are looking at. Right. So it's really great that we have both angles uh, covered today because it's not just any Friday. It is also Cinco de Mayo. But more importantly, (laughs) perhaps it is also a jobs Friday. And man, Maddie, the jobs market is still really hot. 253,000 on non-farm payrolls. Yeah, it's always a good day when I get to hear Mike McKee say, oops, we did it again on the air when he (laughs) said that we're at that 13th month with jobs numbers coming in higher. And, and, you know, Kaylee, you and I talk about it a little differently. We know that those net revisions were down for March and February, but uh, that's not going to stop the Biden administration from being really excited about this report today. Oh, yeah. The president earlier in a cabinet meeting was taking a bit of a victory lap on this one. Here's what he had to say. This morning, uh, we got some good news from the jobs report. Um, We added 250,000 jobs last month. That's on top of the 12 million jobs we've already added just since we came in office a little over two years ago. Unemployment rate is at 3.4 percent, which is the lowest in 50 years. So, Good news for the president. But we have to keep in mind, Maddie, that for the Federal Reserve, I'm not so sure that they still want to be seeing this kind of jobs report. The idea that the labor market is still really tight. Unemployment is just not going up. In fact, the unemployment rate went down to 3.4 percent, as we just heard the president say, and they're trying to fight inflation. And in theory, that means that the labor market is going to have to give a little bit. Yeah, it's one of those classic good news is bad news scenarios that we talk about. And and even in looking at where the jobs are up, it's across the board, right? Professional and business jobs up, healthcare up, leisure. Uh, at one point over the past 13 months, we've seen at least uh, the kind of growth happening specifically in the leisure space, but the overall job market seems unstoppable. So that's you know great news for those that are worried about that pending recession that we keep anticipating. But as you mentioned, Kaylee, not good news for the Fed. Yeah, and we also heard from the president, I should say, on that inflation story. Here's him on that. Inflation is now down 40 percent since last summer. It's come down the last nine months in a row. We obviously have more work to do, but we're trending in the right direction. So on the subject of more work to do, how much of that is going to mean a deterioration in the labor market? Let's add another voice from the White House. Now, I'm so pleased to say that joining us is Bara Ramamurti. He is the deputy director of the National Economic Council and advisor for strategic economic communications. Great to have you back on the show, Mr. Ramamurti. Thanks for having me. So as Maddie and I were just discussing, this was an incredibly strong jobs report. Obviously, uh, the jobs growth, we continue to see something the president has continued to tout. And yet we do still have 
an inflation problem. Is it the belief of the White House that we need to start to see some slack in the labor market to ease the price pressures Americans are feeling, or do we get to have both at the same time? Uh, the short answer is no, and I think the, the best evidence of that is that over the last nine months, we've seen inflation come down significantly, as the president pointed out. Uh, and at the same time, we have added um, millions of jobs, and the unemployment rate has actually dropped, as the president said, uh, to 3.4 percent, which is the lowest it's been since 1969. Uh, side note, I would also add that the black unemployment rate dropped to 4.7 percent, which is the first time in the history of this country that it's been below 5 percent. So uh, we think that we can continue to walk that line where the labor market remains strong, where wages continue to rise at a, at a reasonable pace. Uh, but inflation continues to trend in the right direction. And you mentioned the lowest unemployment rate across the board and specifically for black Americans. And I know that you've talked about crediting the American Rescue Plan for uh, being part of those great numbers there. But uh, on the Republican side, they've credited the American Rescue Plan for being responsible for the record inflation that the Fed is fighting. Talk me through your thinking on those two conflicting pieces of both good and bad news there. Well, I'd say that uh, the American Rescue Plan certainly helped uh, stabilize household balance sheets when the president came into office. And I think with a consumer-driven economy like we have in the United States, making sure that people have financial security, have money in their pockets, and are able to get out there and spend uh, is important to keeping uh, our economy going. And it's a big part of the reason we've had an extraordinarily strong recovery. Uh, On the inflation side, look, inflation is a global problem. There isn't a country in the world that hasn't been dealing with, uh, in many cases, historically high inflation. Even those countries, by the way, that didn't pursue uh, robust fiscal stimulus. A lot of the problems that we had were on the supply side, whether it was uh, supply chain uh, issues and then compounded by uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which uh, disrupted global energy markets and global commodity markets. I, I think overall, the American Rescue Plan, with the support that it provided directly to middle class and lower income families, Uh, put us in a very strong position to weather the global inflation uh, problems that we've had and the global Mm -hmm. supply chain issues that that we've had. It's allowed us, the United States, to come out of this period of time with an economy in much stronger shape than many of our competitors. But kind of on the subject of this inflation problem still, obviously that is a fight that the Fed has been fighting for some time now and quite aggressively. I mean, the labor market has held up despite the Fed has hiked rates to 5%. We're at the highest since 2007. Should the Fed be stopping now, considering that there is still more work to do, and that is something that the president has admitted? Well, look, we're not going to comment uh, on any uh, Fed decisions. We've been respectful of the Fed's independence uh, since the president came into office, and we're going to continue to do that. Uh, what, what I will say is that uh, for the past several months, we've seen interest rates go up We've seen inflation come down and we've seen unemployment go down and jobs go up. And so uh, while, of course, things can change going forward, we continue to think the economy is in a really strong position. Uh, And by the way, a lot of the investments that were put in place in the first two years of the president's term, whether it's the infrastructure bill that he uh, passed into law, whether it was uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the clean energy credits that 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 has, a lot of that investment is is just starting to hit the economy and starting to percolate through the economy. And so uh, that should provide some tailwinds going forward as well. 
the other big issue and headwind for the economy right now that our listeners are really worried about, of course, is that debt ceiling question. We are at four weeks, under four weeks now, to the X date. And President Biden, as you know, only inviting congressional leaders to discuss this uh, this Tuesday here, the criticism being that it's a little too little too late. So what is your message to the business community that's more stressed about the debt ceiling debate than the potential recession question? We've been saying for months now that it's Congress's responsibility to take the threat of default off the table, and they could have passed at any point over the past several weeks a very simple bill that uh, suspended or increased the debt ceiling uh, and took the threat of default default off the table, and with it all the uncertainty that that's creating in financial markets and for our economy. Uh, The president has been really clear that he is happy to have a conversation with all the congressional leaders, including Speaker McCarthy, about uh, tax policy and spending policy. But what we're not going to do, because we're not a deadbeat nation, is have a discussion about whether we're going to default on our debt or not. With all due respect, Mr. Ramamurti, you say that the president has been clear. Speaker McCarthy has been clear as well. He does not want to do a clean lift to the debt ceiling. He would like to negotiate. They want to see deficit reduction and spending cuts on the table. So at what point would you encourage the president to negotiate, to to actually consider some of what uh, the other side of the aisle is proposing here so that we avoid a default and inflicting massive damage to the U.S. economy? Well, look, there is a, a, a standard process by which uh, Congress and the president discuss how we should spend money and how we should tax. And it's called the budget and appropriations process. It happens on basically a yearly basis. It just happened last year where the president sat down with Republican and Democratic leaders and had a negotiation and nobody got exactly what they wanted. But nobody was threatening to blow up the right. global economy. But that's not, but that's not the moment that we're, we're in now. So why wouldn't the White House need to adjust for this moment in time? Could the risk actually be greater that this time is different, that Republicans are actually willing to get close to the edge of the cliff or per- perhaps go over it? Well, look, there is a really important principle at stake here, which is why the president has been clear on this. Uh, if we agree... Uh, to negotiations uh, with the threat of default hanging over us. And if Republicans are permitted to use the possibility of a global economic crisis to ram through um, spending cuts and other changes uh, that would be harmful to the economy, uh, we'll be right back in this position over and over again. Remember, this is what they're proposing is a one-year extension of the debt limit. We really want to be in a position where year after year, uh, we put the threat of a global economic crisis on the table And one party with a narrow majority in one House of Congress is allowed to use that leverage to uh, impose the most extreme version of their fiscal policy on the United States. Uh, The president believes that that's not the appropriate way to manage the world's leading economy. Uh, He's standing up for that principle. And at the same time, I don't think anybody accused Joe Biden of not being willing to sit down and talk with Democrats Mm -hmm. and Republicans. It's something he did repeatedly over the first two years when he got more bipartisan legislation done than anybody would have thought possible. I know that you you don't want to negotiate this on air with us, but one could say that the outcomes here are either Biden bending, McCarthy bending, or an economic disaster. Which of those are you anticipating? Well, you're right. I'm not going to negotiate on it, and and I'm less interested in, in sort of the political dynamics around this. And really, I want to emphasize the point that I just made, which is mm. uh, we are the world's leading economy. And we're the only country other than one that has this sort of debt ceiling uh, that that looms over the economy from time to time. Uh, And it's not an appropriate way to conduct economic policy 
to allow uh, one party, which has a narrow majority in one House of Congress, uh, to use that as a bargaining tool, the threat of global economic uh, crisis as a bargaining tool uh, to get through uh, brutally unpopular and brutally uh, harmful cuts to the economy. Remember, Moody's did an analysis of the Republican bill that, that passed the House. And Moody's found that it would uh, push us meaningfully closer to a recession and cost us 800,000 jobs over the next year. So really, those are the options that the Republicans have put in front of us, either a global economic crisis because of a default or push the country closer to a recession and cost us 800,000 jobs. I hope that folks will realize why that's not a negotiation we're interested in entering. I'd like to shift gears just a little bit here, because, of course, the other thing that has been looming large in the economic conversation has been the health of regional banks after we've seen multiple failures this year, the most recent, of course, being First Republic this uh, this week on, on Monday. We had seen some concern in the market, for sure, about the health of PacWest, Western Alliance, some of these other uh, banking stocks getting absolutely crushed. Now we're seeing a massive uh, rebound today. Does the administration feel that any further steps are necessary to stabilize the system, and what would those steps be? If you look at the data, I think the overall banking system is strong and in resilient shape. Uh, obviously, back with, with Silicon Valley Bank, there was a concern about uh, a run on deposits. We're not seeing uh, much indication at all of uh, some sort of run on deposits now or, or strong deposit outflow. Uh, and so I think people should feel confident that if they have deposits in the bank, they're going to be there if they need them. And separately, our regulators, the FDIC, uh, the Fed, uh, they have tools available to them that they've used in the past and that may, you know, they would be willing to use again in the future uh, that can help intervene uh, with individual banks that, that may uh, need that intervention. But uh, if you take a step back, you look at the, the capitalization of the financial system, you look at the overall health of both the larger banks and the smaller community banks, and I think the banking system in the United States overall is actually in very strong and resilient shape. Well, certainly from a market perspective, looking a little bit stronger today. Thank you so much for your time. That's Bharat Ramamurti. He is the Deputy Director of the National Economic Council and Advisor for Strategic Economic Communications. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. And Maddie, I guess it just now is a matter of counting down over the next couple of days until we get to Tuesday, May 9th. We really see what kind of progress can be made uh, on this debt ceiling discussion. Yeah, and I just think about the fact that there are only, what, seven days in May where there's that yeah. overlap between Congress and the White House. So time's ticking. <laughs> time is ticking. Arguably, that clock is just ticking louder and faster as time goes on and we approach June 1st, which, as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has su- suggested earlier this week, it could be as early as then mm. that the U.S. cannot pay its bills. A story we will continue to stay on top of. Madison Mills in New York, Kaylee Lines in Washington. Sound On continues. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business.
business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Welcome back to the fastest show in politics. Joe Matthew is taking this Friday off. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, together today with Madison Mills in New York as both Wall Street and Washington continue to have our eyes on the clock, the clock that is ticking louder and faster toward the X date with every passing day. And yet, Maddie, as we get closer to this meeting next week between President Biden and congressional leaders that's taking place on Tuesday, it seems like both sides are just digging in their heels even further, not giving any sign of budging heading into these talks. Yeah, and I just keep thinking about Congress uh, going home for the weekend and whether or not folks are, you know, plugging away on phone calls this weekend, working on this, and also thinking about President Biden, us not necessarily hearing a ton from him this week. I feel like you had the most recent eyes on him, Kaylee, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. But other than that, I feel like we haven't heard much from him this week on this. Yeah, although he did speak in a cabinet meeting earlier and after taking a bit of a victory lap on the jobs report, did address this whole debate over the debt ceiling. Listen to what he said. The two are totally unrelated. Whether you pay the debt or not doesn't have a damn thing to do with what your budget is, what your budget is, where you're going to spend money, how you're going to raise the money, what are you going to cut, what are you going to... That's the... There are two separate issues, two. And let's get it straight. We're trying to hold the debt hostage to us to agree to some draconian cuts, magnificently difficult and damaging cuts. So repeating the line we have heard consistently from the White House, they'll negotiate on the budget, which they view as an entirely separate conversation than the debt ceiling one. Let's bring in Steve Dennis now. He is Bloomberg congressional reporter who will help us give us the perspective from the congressional side. So, Steve, great to see you here in the D.C. studio. As we get closer to this meeting, do we have any real sense of whether or not it feels like progress can be made when Biden's digging in his heels and congressional leaders feel like they are, too? Seems so far, this seems like the most intractable beginning to a debt limit negotiation that I can remember. And you know, there's no easy, obvious way out when one side is saying, I must have concessions to take back to my conference, and that's Speaker McCarthy, Mm -hmm. and the White House is saying, We're going to give you nothing. But there is, you know, a lot of things that they need to talk about anyways. They do need to have a budget deal. They need to set caps for uh, the appropriations bills later this year. They need to negotiate a defense level, a domestic level. They need to negotiate on the border. Uh, There are a lot of things for them to talk about. And the kind of the question I have coming out of that meeting is whether they make any progress on these other things that the Republicans could go back to their conference and say, hey, we're we're going to get something here. It's not going to be, uh, you know, getting uh, coming home empty handed where the White House can claim, well, I didn't negotiate on the debt limit, but mm-hmm. I am negotiating on these other things. Can they thread that needle? And there's just only, you know, they're only going to be in town like a week together. Yeah, like seven days in May, right? I, I mean, I think that there is a chance – that, you know, the Biden could cancel his trip to Japan, the House and the Senate could cancel some of their recesses mm-hmm. around Memorial Day. Pull a few all-nighters. Right. So uh, what what usually happens in these kind of situations is when markets start reacting, and they already are in the short-term bond market, that that puts amps up the pressure. And the problem, of course, for the economy is when you get close, like we did in 2011, 
the S&P 500 uh, fell quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, consumer confidence got crushed and all the rest. And, and we got downgraded. So there's Yeah. That. So, I, I mean, and there's already warnings from the credit rating yeah. agencies that they are watching and uh, not liking what they're seeing. But that's part of the PTSD here that's sort of impacting Biden's, uh, like you say, digging in his heels on not wanting to negotiate is what happened in, in 2011 here. Stephen, do you see any big differences happening this time specifically in regards to maybe executive action? on the debt limit? Yeah, I, I do think that the the potential for executive action, whether it be minting the coin or premium bonds or zero coupon bonds or declaring the 14th Amendment, which says you can't question the debt, makes the debt limit unconstitutional. And, you know, any and or all of those become more and more uh, sort of front of mind as we get closer to the cliff diving moment, whether that's actually June 1st, you know, some of the Republican senators I've talked to this week are kind of questioning whether it might really be more like July. Mm. And so uh, that, you know, you wonder, is the White House, which has not said they absolutely won't do those things, that, you know, they're not looking Haven't at it right it now, yeah. but... Um, you know, you kind of wonder: Are they holding that sort of in their back pocket as sort of like a magic pineapple to to save the day? <laughs> and you know, I mean, uh, th- th- there there does just seem to be a, a really intractable thing going from you know they, they, the two sides learned different lessons from 2011. Yeah, the Democrats saw that that deal, which had a 10-year spending uh, cuts over two trillion dollars really put Barack Obama's domestic agenda in a straitjacket mm-hmm. for the final six years of his presidency. Democrats think that was a disaster. Yeah. Republicans think, hey, that was pretty good. <laughs> we, we, we constrained spending for six years. or for. It depends you know, on what kind of glasses you put on, right, to right. look back at that. Steve, we got to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us. Terrific reporting. And I look forward to your continued reporting on this, especially as we get to next Tuesday. That's Steve Dennis, Bloomberg congressional reporter. We have to get to our political panel now, Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Doug High, a Republican strategist, the former RNC communications director, are joining us now. Jeannie, especially given the events of this morning, a really strong jobs report that President Biden now has at his back. Does that just give him maybe a little extra swagger and a little bit more of a firm, I am giving a talking to, I am not talking when he goes into this on Tuesday? Yeah, it, it sounded, he sounded very positive, um, as did did Barat in your interview, that, that they yeah. are on the right path here. And, you know, what is absolutely startling is, you know, I've worked in organizations in crises. You don't leave Thursday at 3.30 and come back, you know, four days later. And this is what our Congress is doing. The president calling meetings a week out. So everybody else is on pins and needles, but it's a bit surreal to watch. They don't seem to feel a sense of urgency in the White House or Congress if you look at this schedule they're keeping, which is absolutely maddening for the American public. And that's something I think the White House does need to speak to as well as congressional leadership. Well, I think that's a great question. That's what I've been wondering is why isn't the Biden administration speaking out about the work he's doing, even if it's uh, in the Oval Office on the phones uh, to to work on the debt ceiling question? Doug, what's your take on why we haven't heard more on that? Um, Well, we don't hear a whole lot from Joe Biden, by and large. Um, we hear a lot less of, from him than, we, than we've heard from previous presidents. I know he's doing an interview with Stephanie Rule tonight. That's yeah. out of the norm from him. Um, but clearly, you know, Biden's hardwired DNA is one of negotiation and compromise. It's been his whole career from working with Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms to 
working with my old boss, Eric Canner, on something called the debt ceiling. Um, and so as we've gotten into, certainly our politics are very different today than they were 11 years ago, it becomes a question of what is tenable here. And what we right. see is, is the results in advance look to be muddled. Polling shows that you know, a very slim plurality, certain, certainly not a majority, would blame congressional Republicans over Biden when you look at, say, ABC Washington Post polling, which says this is going to be bad for everybody if they're not able to reach some kind of a deal. Well, you say, Doug, uh, you know, talking of negotiation and compromise and slim margins in Congress, McCarthy is also working with a very slim margin in this House. And yes, he passed this bill. That doesn't mean he had an easy time of it. So even if Biden were to start negotiating, isn't McCarthy going to have to give some of that up just thinking logically? And then ultimately, what will his caucus think about that? What are they realistically willing to lose? Yeah, it's interesting. I thought Kevin deserved a lot more credit than he got for getting that bill through. If we go back uh, to the Friday night when Kevin becomes speaker, the, the narrative in Washington is that he's a speaker in name only and won't be able to do anything. So he got this done and it was hard work, but the real hard work is what now be, uh, begins. And for some members in his conference, anything more than what is in this bill or anything less is unacceptable. Uh, but that's not the majority necessarily of his conference. And if he's able to reach a deal where he gets a majority of Republicans and, and brings Democrats, that's how Washington should work. Uh, even when Washington kicks the can and kicks the can and continues to do so, which could happen here. But he does have that very real possibility uh, that some elements of his uh, conference could make a motion to vacate the, the chair ultimately meaning his speakership. And that's a political problem that that he's not going to be able to absorb uh, potentially. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. How how tenuous is McCarthy's position here? Doug, Doug, hi, of course. Thank you. And let's stick with you here. We're going to take a quick break. But Doug and Jeannie are going to come back with us. That's our Bloomberg Politics contributor, Jeannie Shanzano. And then, of course, Doug, hi. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bloomberg Sound On. Joe Matthew taking the day off. I am Kaylee Lines in Washington, joined today by Madison Mills in New York. And Maddie, we have to talk about what is happening in New York right now, what has become a very big news story up there, the death of Jordan Neely. Yeah, Kelly Neely was a 30-year-old uh, unsheltered man. We understand that he suffered from mental illness and was killed in the subway. That was after a fellow passenger, a 24-year-old, put Neely into a chokehold. And this was all caught on video. Uh, that 24-year-old was taken into custody, questioned, and then released. No charges have been filed, but the case is still under investigation and has ignited protests throughout the city. And we should note that as these protests are happening, politicians from the state of New York are weighing in on this, including Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who wrote on Twitter on Wednesday that Jordan Neely was murdered. But because Jordan was houseless and crying for food in a time when the city is raising rents and stripping services to militarize itself, while many in power demonize the poor, the murderer gets protected with passive headlines and no charges it's disgusting. And she is butting heads pretty directly with New York City Mayor Eric Adams over this issue. Here is him speaking earlier this week. There are many layers to this. Uh, let them let the process follow its course. And so uh, 
get engaged with uh, comparisons and where we are, where we are, where we aren't. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let the investigation run its course. And those who believe uh, that I should do something differently, I respect that. But um, I have to make the right decision for the city of New York. So that's at the city level, but we have also had some weigh in at the state level as well. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said this earlier this week. No, that was deeply disturbing. And that causes a lot of fear in people. And actually, the mayor and I are working so hard to restore that sense of safety. We have the cameras on the subways. We have more police officers. We're assisting with overtime. We've been doing so much. And the, the numbers have been improving. The number of crimes on subways has been declining. And I don't want people to feel anxious again when something like that comes to light. It, it is deeply disturbing. So this all speaks to the wider issue of crime in America's cities and, and the difficult politics around it. So let's bring back our panel for their thoughts. Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Doug High, the Republican strategist, former RNC communications director. Jeannie, first to you, since I know you are quite familiar with New York in particular, but this isn't a problem unique to New York. Crime has become an increasingly large part of the political narrative. How difficult it is is it for these leaders, Democratic leaders in many cases in, in large cities, to navigate? It is incredibly difficult. And, you know, as we look at the U.S. House of Representatives, arguably the reason Republicans control it today is because Democrats in my home state of New York did not do a good job of addressing crime in the last election. And that cost Democrats a number of seats and that allowed Republicans to take over. And it was all on the issue of crime. That's the reason Mayor Eric Adams, who you were just talking about, was elected in New York City. And now, of course, this horrible incident on the F train involving a former Michael Jackson impersonator. And it has just created a firestorm in New York City. Questions of racial politics, questions Mm -hmm. of the failure of the mental health system in our city, homelessness and everything else with everybody weighing in and still no charges levied against this young veteran, a former Marine, we understand, who's being named in some press accounts and not others. We understand a former Marine who put him in this chokehold. So it has really created a firestorm here in New York. And it's obviously not happening in a vacuum, Jeannie. We're just three months out from the death of Tyree Nichols, uh, the man who died after being beaten by police officers. And we know that President Biden invited uh, his parents to the State of the Union. He talked specifically about uh, wanting to free our neighborhoods from violence in his address and reiterated his executive order on banning chokeholds. Doug, come on in here. How does this broader question uh, play into Biden's messaging when it comes to the campaign for 2024? Well, it certainly complicates it. And, you know, I, some the sound that you just played, somebody said, I, I, I don't know if that was the mayor who said, I'm going yeah. to let the investigation yeah. t- run its course. That is, of course, the right thing to say. And I say that because so often we have um, passions that are inflamed because we've seen parts of videos um, or even whole videos. But if we don't know exactly what happened and why, we have a rush to judgment. And I say this because I know people who were sued uh, because of that video that we that we all saw parts of in front of the Lincoln Memorial uh, mm. with an, a Native American uh, older gentleman and some high school students. And people felt compelled to condemn it immediately. But they hadn't seen the full video and they got sued for it um, on the issue largely of crime, though. It's not uh, an issue that just plays out in one or two localities. These mm. become very national issues, as this will in New York. Uh, So many voters know that uh, very large 
stores and businesses are closing in San Francisco. They know that Portland's a mess. Uh, and then they hear about what, what's happening in their local communities, too. They're upset. They're scared. And, uh, you know, as Jeannie pointed out, this had real electoral co uh, consequences in New York. And I'd wager if it weren't for the Dobbs decision um, and some extreme rhetoric from various Republican candidates uh, throughout the country, crime would have been much more of a national issue in the last elections as well. So what about in the elections that are ahead of us? How do you see this influencing 2024, Doug? Where do you think this issue in particular ranks on the list of voter priorities? I think it's one that potentially rises um, every time we, we see stats and every time we see stories. You know, the, the numbers are scary and the individual stories are scary. And it's incumbent on both Republicans and Democrats to find a way to talk about crime that doesn't turn off broad swaths of voters. And that starts mm -hmm. with funding for police. Uh, yes, we, we do have police that go overboard, sometimes groups of police, um, as we've all seen. But when you're talking about defunding police, whether you're a Democrat and uh, in dealing in specific situations in, in your cities and police brutality, or you're a Republican who's saying it because of uh, Donald Trump and investigations into him, you turn off a lot of voters. And it's, mes it's messaging that your party then has a tough time turning away from because our extremes often define us in partisan politics. All right. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. But thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Fantastic political panel. That was Doug High, a Republican strategist, the former RNC communications director, and of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shan Zeno. And, and Maddie, I know you have a real feel on what is happening in New York right now. But as both of them pointed out, this is not a New York a specific issue. We are seeing these kind of conversations happening all over the country. All over the country and in all different facets, right? We see it with gun violence, mass shootings, uh, the immigration problem at the border. It's, it's going to be a huge issue heading into 2024. Indeed. And it's something we will continue to cover. We have much more coming up. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Maddie, I got to say, as Charlie talks about the rebound we are seeing in bank stocks today, this Friday to me feels very different than last Friday did when I was watching what was happening with the shares of First Republic and just waiting with bated breath for the headline to cross about the FDIC taking receivership of the bank. Obviously, we didn't actually get that until very early Monday morning, but all week we've been questioning whether or not we were going to see another working weekend for banking regulators and financial regulation reporters like myself. Uh, but maybe it seems like we're not we're not going to have a repeat of that this time around. 
Yeah, and it's so interesting to see the continued sell-off in these regionals, but our Herman Chan, who is the expert on this we're going to speak with in a a little bit, has continued to reiterate all week, the regionals are on stable footing fundamentally, Mm -hmm. so that's not stopping the sell-off. What is the argument then for why they're vulnerable and what needs to be done on the regulatory level, as you said, Kaylee? Yeah, well, and on that point, obviously, a lot of the concern around these regional banks has been about deposit flight. The idea that depositors will flee these smaller institutions for higher yielding products or banks that are too big to fail. And for that reason, it has been floated that maybe deposit insurance that the FDIC offers that cap should be higher. This is something that Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts was talking about when I spoke with her in the Senate hall yesterday. We need to change the limit on deposit insurance. Small businesses need to know for sure that the money that uh, they're using for payroll and mortgage payments and uh, uh, utilities will be fully insured. And yes, that was a baby crying we heard in the background. There was uh, one of the test of those one of the people testifying uh, before the Senate Banking Committee in yesterday's hearing was a mother in her 18 month old son was there. Uh, It was very cute to see him wandering around. But back to the idea of deposit insurance reform. I asked Representative Byron Donalds of Florida, he is a Republican, about that same issue on balance of power last night. His answer was a little bit different. I don't support uh, modifications to FDIC insurance. The issue we have here is that some of the regional banks were long treasuries because they didn't really understand or realize that what was going to happen with interest rate moves because of Joe Biden's reckless economic policy. All right, so let's add another voice to this, Maddie. Joining us now is Senator Pat Toomey, is a, a former Republican senator from Pennsylvania and the former ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee. So you know he has thoughts on this. Senator, thank you so very much for joining us. What is your degree hey, of confidence... Thank you for being here. What is your degree of confidence about the stability in the banking system? Is there something further that Congress and financial regulators need to do here? What action is needed? So I think this whole episode has put a bright spotlight on a significant problem. And what I'm alluding to is the intrinsic instability of fractional reserve banking. And we've made that into so so you know just to be specific, what I'm saying is the the idea that you take demand deposits, which can be withdrawn at any time for any reason or no reason at all, and you put aside just a small fraction of those for those who come in to withdraw it, and you lend long term, whether it's buying government bonds or making corporate loans or other assets. That duration mismatch is fundamental intrinsic, inherent part of banking, and it always has been. And it Mm. relies entirely on the premise that the deposits aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Well, I think that fundamental question uh, is being challenged here. Mm. We have seen how quickly deposit flight can occur. Um, Technology can make it instant. I mean, there are $40 billion left SVB Bank in four hours. Uh, There's never, never been anything like this before. So, uh, look, it doesn't matter for banks that uh, for whom the vast majority of their deposits are guaranteed anyway. There's no incentive for people to move their deposits, or at least not aside from price, which is another matter. Mm. And there's no uh, real incentive uh, of that sort for people whose deposits are with giant banks because, you know, Dodd-Frank and the SIPI designation makes them clearly too big to fail. 
The question is those banks, which we kind of euphemistically call regional banks, in fact, what we mean are banks that are disproportionately dependent on uninsured deposits. Right. And I think the premise that those deposits are never going anywhere is highly dubious. And so I'm not at all convinced that this is over. Then do you support modifications to uh, FDIC insurance, given your view on that? So, the, so it's right. So the question is, what do we do about it? Um, I can think of a couple of ways we could deal with this. One would be to increase deposit insurance, but we shouldn't assume that that has to be the FDIC. I don't like the idea of expanding the government's guarantee. That will lead to incremental socialism of the banking system because people are going to say, well, if the taxpayer's taken all the risk, shouldn't the taxpayer get some of the reward? It'll also lead to a new wave of very prescriptive regulation, which will hold back growth. So I actually think that's likely outcome, but it's not a great outcome. A better outcome by far, in my view, would be to have private insurance. Um, I'll have AAA insurance companies or other very high-quality institutions systematically offer deposit guarantees for a price. And the well-managed banks would get it for a low price, and the less well-managed banks would pay a higher price. And mm. you'd have a third party evaluating the creditworthiness of these banks. I think that's a better outcome. Just continuing on this question of regulation, as I was saying, I spoke with Congressman Byron Donalds, uh, who we heard from earlier last night. He wants to hear from Mary Daly in the San Francisco Fed. We've heard a lot of that uh, in Congress as well. There's been a lot of finger pointing at the supervisors, at bank management. Is the finger being pointed in the right direction? Well, so first of all, I think the finger has to be pointed at the Fed. Let's be clear. None of this happens without the Fed's uh, complicity. And, and by that, I'm referring to the massive surge in the money supply that ended up in the form of deposits on a lot of these, in part, right? It went uh, in a lot of places, but one of which was massive surge in deposits. Then in a zero interest rate environment, these banks inevitably were seeking to move out the risk curve. In the case of these banks that have failed, it wasn't so much the credit risk curve as a maturity and duration risk curve. And then when the Fed very blatantly discovered that they're way behind the curve, they jacked up interest rates very quickly and very dramatically and cratered the bond portfolios that they were responsible for creating in the first place. So so that that's exhibit A in terms of where to point the finger. But, you know, look, supervisors, in my experience, in my judgment, almost always miss the next problem because they're fixated on the last problem or some other problem. This was lying in plain view. Everybody knew what the balance sheet looked like on these banks. Everybody knew that interest rates were higher and bond prices were lower. So there was, there's, the supervisors have no excuse. But this plays out again and again, which is part of the reason why I prefer we have private sector players who tend to be better at anticipating these kinds of problems than government regulators. Um, but we'll, we'll see how this turns out. Yeah, I, I want to transition to the question on all of our minds, which is the big debt ceiling elephant in the room. And I know that uh, you went through this back in 2011 when the Federal Reserve had contingency plans. Uh, at the time, Jay Powell, who, as we know now, Fed chair, went around warning about the risks of debt default and saying alternatives like prioritizing payments were not helpful. Do you think that he undercut Republicans back then, even though his interventionism sort of put him on the radar uh, and paved his way to where he is now? You know, I, I, I don't 
I'd have to go back and reacquaint myself with, uh, with the things that he actually said. That was over a decade ago. Um, but I will tell you this. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, every major budget deal that has been done over the last 40 years has been done in the context of a debt ceiling increase. When you have divided government, there is always a fight over the debt ceiling, and it always gets resolved. And if there's going to be any kind of budget agreement, it happens in that context. This is absolutely the right moment to have this. And by the way, uh, I strongly push back on the notion that there's any meaningful chance of a default on our debt. Ongoing tax revenue is eight times, roughly eight times this year's debt service requirement. Why would Janet Yellen ever make the decision to not make an interest payment when she's got eight times the cash flow to do it? It would be beyond beyond imprudent and incompetent. It wouldn't happen. Now, that's not to say that what would happen is desirable. What will happen is vendors won't get paid on time. And at some point, some big checks that should be going out won't. That's not at all optimal. Mm. But it's very different from a def- It's much closer to a partial government shutdown right. than it is to a default on our debt. Yeah. So it so sounds I, like, I, it, well, I'm sorry, Senator, but it does sound like you're pretty confident. But I wonder then, and just to go back to 2011, the Fed had contingency plans, right? So is that something that you would push for now just as a hedge if things don't work out as, as you predict? Well, I think it's actually the Treasury's responsibility, and I would be I, – I, I know they have these contingencies. Let me just put it that way. I know they have. They have these contingency plans in place. They've known about this for a long time. They probably had it pretty fully in place back in 2011, and we're 12 years later, and how many debt ceiling uh, increases along the way. Yeah. So they have that plan in place. And you can argue about, well, will it work perfectly or will there be some hitches since it's never been required before? It's possible that there could be some hiccups along the way, but we're not going to default on our debt. And I do think in the end, because the House was able to pass a bill that raises the debt ceiling, it's very hard for President Biden not to engage and have a negotiation that will result in probably both sides being able to claim a victory. But it'll be a debt ceiling increase and some modest movement in the direction of reducing spending. Senator, as you say, Speaker McCarthy was able to pass a bill on the House floor. He got the 217 votes he needed, but that doesn't mean the job was easy for him. It, it took a lot of giving to get all the members of his party in line. And we know how hard it was for him to get just the speakership in the first place, which just kind of speaks to the disjointedness of the Republican Party at the moment. Do you think that there are members of the Republican Party, specifically in the House, that would actually be willing to see this country default? Oh, I very much doubt it. And if so, they're very, very small minority. Nobody nobody wants that to happen. And and I give Kevin McCarthy a lot of credit. I didn't think he would get the votes to pass something. There were a lot of Republican House members who have over their careers, many times voted against the debt ceiling increase and never voted for one. Yet, two weeks ago, whenever it was, they voted in favor of raising the debt ceiling. And if you actually look at the substance of their proposals, they were quite quite modest and sensible. They wanted to take discretionary spending all the way back to where it was and then let it grow, but only at 1% rather than the projected rates of growth. They want to have some limited work requirements on 
able-bodied adults without dependents who are receiving welfare payments of various kinds. They want to claw back a little bit of the wildly excess amount of money that the federal government pumped into the state and local governments, and some of which hasn't even been spent yet. Most Americans will listen to that and say, well, that doesn't sound so crazy. So this is why I think um, it was really impressive that he was able to get those guys held together, the fact that they voted for this. Look, the end compromise is going to include a lot of Democrat votes, so probably there'll be a number of Republicans who'll say, well, I don't want to vote for this compromise version. They're going to lose some of the things they wanted. Right, that's right, and that's how this is inevitably going to end. But I think um, Kevin McCarthy has strengthened his position within the Republican conference. He has Mm -hmm. strengthened the Republican uh, debate over the merits of a debt ceiling increase, and he's increased the chances that he gets through all of this, uh, you know, with his speakership intact. And, of course, he's getting ready to sit down with President Biden, as he's been asking for some time on Tuesday. We have to leave it there. But, Senator, please come back and join us soon. That is Pat Toomey, former Republican senator from Pennsylvania and, of course, former ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee. The conversations continue. Sound on keeps going. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is indeed the fastest show in politics. Bloomberg Sound On. Joe Matthews taking this Friday off. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, joined today by Madison Mills in New York. And Maddie, it feels like literally my entire life since I moved to Washington has been consumed by banking drama and all of the regulatory conversations that have followed. It feels, though, like the mood music is a little bit different today. As we were just hearing from Charlie, we have a massive rebound taking place in some of these regional banking shares. And I would note as well that some of the officials from the White House also are sounding more positive on the banking system. Here's Heather Boucher speaking on Bloomberg TV earlier. There's been stresses in the banking sector and you know, through bold and decisive action that the administration has taken and the FDIC, um, you know, we've been able to see stability come back into that system and we've seen deposit flows again stabilize. So I think there are indications that we are um, uh, in, in a better place, certainly. She, of course, Maddie, is a member of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors. And Kaylee, like you were mentioning, and I was just talking about this with our next guest here, but this has been going on for almost two months now, and those months have been nonstop for our Herman Chan, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Regional Banks Analyst. Herman, great to speak with you here in our interactive broker studio. Uh, We've been talking basically every day, you and I and everyone here at Bloomberg. Um, Talk to me about what's new today, specifically with Western Alliance, Zions, and Comerica upgraded to overweight by J.P. Morgan. What is new today that led to this change? Look, uh, if you talk about all these banks and, and the banking system in general, not much has changed since earnings that were reported a couple weeks back. It, it showed stability in, in deposits. Deposits held up better than feared. Um, and, and there's no real uh, shoot a drop on the credit quality front, even though there, there's headline risk with office commercial real estate that's been you know, fluttering about. But really... The, the the visceral reaction from the markets over the past couple of days has outside of today has just been driven by negative sentiment and the 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 upgrade from JP Morgan was was really good to see because mm-hmm. it, it it brought some clarity and, and 
and some uh, better common sense with, with what's going on fundamentally within the regional bank space. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point on sentiment because it feels almost as if the pattern has been with all these failures. Something happens to spook the markets, then the shares start selling off dramatically, and then that just kind of feeds into the wider confidence crisis. And it felt for most of this week that that was what was happening with PacWest and Western Alliance, that perhaps, you know, market calamity could lead to real calamity. And Herman, I say this, you know, knocking on wood with my fingers crossed, but does Mm -hmm. this mean that the FDIC can take the weekend off? We're not likely to see more failures at this point? I think for this weekend, we we can breathe a sigh of relief and not... uh Stay tuned on Sunday at starting at <laughs> six o'clock p.m. to see if there's any sort of announcement, and and I fingers crossed on that front as well. Uh, but really, it it does seem like at least the, the banks in question from yesterday, uh, PacWest and Western Alliance, they're talking about stable deposit balances through the second quarter thus far, and and Western Alliance in particular was was reiterating deposit inflow guidance of two billion dollars. So. It just seems like everything's mm-hmm. just been been driven more by market participants pressing against the shorts. So on the point of deposits being stable, I wonder if the policy response around that really matters at this point. The FDIC, of course, gave an overview earlier this week talking about different kinds of reform that could happen to the deposit insurance fund, including unlimited coverage or targeted coverage that raises the cap for businesses. Would a tweak to FDIC... FDIC insurance matter at this point if this is no longer really a deposit flight issue? It's not a deposit flight issue, but I I think any change would be at least a sign of confidence that the regulators are are taking this a bit seriously and and think there there needs to be action. So action speaks louder than words. And if there's a sort of blanket guarantee or a short-term guarantee, I think that would do wonders in terms of boosting the market confidence across the regional banks. So what does the regulatory cost burden then look like for these regional banks if we get movement from Washington? Yeah, uh, I I think you're just going to see higher FDIC assessment fees, which the banks all pay out uh, collectively Mm -hmm. each quarter. And the the insurance fund is already dipping, right? Because Mm -hmm. it was at about $128 billion at the end of the year. And You've got a $20 billion loss from SBB, $13 billion from First Republic, and two and a half from Signature. So that needs to be built up, which uh, the assessment fees, a special assessment fee is coming down the pike. And you'd expect if, if we get a more blanket type guarantee that that would just increase the assessment fees collectively across the, the banks. Well, and of course, Herman, we had a great Bloomberg scoop from our colleague Katanga Johnson uh, yesterday about those assessment fees. Apparently, the FDIC is looking at proposing only really applying those to the bigger banks and making any institution with less than $10 billion in assets exempt from from paying those fees. But as you say, there are other kind of regulatory costs at play here. We all read Michael Bars, uh, the vice chair of supervision at the Fed's report uh, from earlier, uh, mm-hmm. about a week ago, I believe now, in which he was talking about you know tighter liquidity and capital uh, requirements. Does that mean that further consolidation is still going to have to come among the regional banks? And if so, who would be the buyers and who would be the bot? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, the expected tightening of uh, regulations across the regional banks is something that we're expecting. Um, you mentioned uh, liquidity requirements. The liquidity coverage ratio will come back for the regional banks. Uh, it 
the unrealized losses in securities will, will be part of the capital calculations for the regionals as well. So there's going to be a litany of, of tweaks, um, mm. and it will reduce the profitability of the regional banks. And one way to counteract that is consolidation to increase your scale. So ideally, in a perfect world, I think the regional banks would love to do M&A. But as you've seen with earlier this week, you know, yesterday with TD and, and First Horizon, that, right. that deal broke because they couldn't get regulatory approval. So th- the the regulators need the signal to, to, to the industry that they're open and willing for, for this in order for banks to do M&A on, on a large scale. So I'm not going to ask you who the next uh, bank to fail is because I know you're tired of answering that, <laughs> but I will ask you, and, and especially off of what you were just saying about M&A, what is the business of regional banking going to look like in five years? Right. Yeah, it, it's going to be a smaller subset. Um, the banks that you know we think, uh, just circling back to that prior question about who are the buyers, you mm. you can look at the banks that have bid that bid on First Republic that that didn't get that that acquisition. And the news came out that it was PNC, it was Fifth Third. Um, so the, these are sort of the banks that we think will be consolidators over time. But really, the lessons learned across um, this whole episode, starting with SVB, was you need to manage your balance sheet much more conservatively. You have to have a diverse uh, deposit base and not just focused on one sort of vertical like SVB did. And uh, that just means like lower net interest margins because you're 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 not you're not adding securities that are mm-hmm. longer dated to create interest rate risk. All right, Herman, I got a selfish question for you here to wrap things up because I'm going to be on Capitol Hill a lot in the coming weeks because the House Financial Services Committee, the Banking Committee, other committees as well are all holding hearings into bank failures and and regulatory matters. Mm-hmm. If you had one question for lawmakers surrounding this right now that would help you understand kind of what the fundamental picture of these banks is going to look like, what should I be asking? Yeah, you're, you, we should be asking really what what's going on because some of these tweaks to regulations don't really address the fundamental issues, right? So the fundamental issues are the flightiness of deposits. How do do regulators in Washington think about technology and the ability to move deposits so quickly with just a flick of a finger? And and what about uninsured deposits? Should should that be part of the calculation for for some of these different capital and liquidity ratios? Because that, that was really what's drove the the failures essentially of these three institutions all right catch me over here taking notes herman thank you very much for the excellent question and for your all your insight of course that was herman chan bloomberg intelligence senior regional banks analyst thanks for listening to the sound on podcast make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at apple spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.